Well, thank you for coming out on this incredibly rainy, yucky, wet morning. I hope you're having a fantastic beginning of your reunions weekend. I know that we are very happy to have you here. Um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Arthur Garson, MD and MPH. Um, I know him better as Tim, and by the end of the talk, you probably all will know him better as Tim yourself. Um, he teaches health policy in the medical school curriculum. He develops cross-grounds initiatives in health policy, and he serves as a special consultant to the UVA Office of Development, which is my favorite way to know him. He, um, he is a national leader in healthcare reform efforts, and he has served on the White House panel on health policy and is president of the American College of Cardiology, chair of the AHRQ National Advisory Council. Dr. Garson is a member of the Institute of Medicine. He has been a visiting professor in more than 100 institutions and is on the faculty of the Children's Hospital in Paris. I wonder why he never offered to take me to Paris to raise money. <laughs> he is the author of more than 450 publications and eight books, including Healthcare Half-Truths, Too Many Myths, and Not Enough Reality. He has chaired the Health Reform Committees for the American College of Cardiology and the Association of American Medical Colleges and currently chairs the Committee Concerned with Healthcare Workforce for the American College of Cardiology. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Garson, and I know you're going to enjoy his talk. Good morning. Uh, given the development part of what I do, I want to thank every one of you for, who gave to the rotunda restoration so we're not leaking. <laughs> and it ain't done yet, so you know, on the way out there are $20,000 little increments on the way out, so thank you on the way out. Uh, I'm going to put you to work. This is not me talking. Uh, the, the, I think you probably know that the adult learning, uh, and even as adults as our current undergraduates, uh, lecturing is going in the can, and what we'd like, <laughs> the can and other places, it's much better for you to go to work, not just me to go to work. So what we're going to do, you've each got a uh, little piece of paper that have true or false written on it, and what we're going to do for the next six hours, <laughs> not, is talk about some of these things. And I think probably the way to get started is to vote. And so if we start with this first one that says our health care is second rate compared to other countries, how many of you would say true? Now, you got, by the way, Everybody got to raise their hand once, twice, or three times, but not zero. Which other country? Okay, so, so the way this works <laughs> is the words are important. So, so the words, and so you got to vote on what's written down. Okay, our health care is second rate compared to other countries. How many true? How many false? So the falses seem to have it. Let's start with somebody, haha, 
who would like to talk to the false, and there are no wrong answers here, but, but let's start a discussion. Go. Okay, we got a microphone, theoretically. I've got one, so <laughs> here we go. I say false, but I qualify it as it's, if you can afford it, it's good. If you can afford it, it's good. Okay, good. Next, more. The list for uh, transplants versus other countries. Uh, the list for transplants is low, good, bad. Availability of organs is low. Availability of organs is good, is bad. bad. Okay, more. Okay, we're going to come back to that word access. Hold on to that word. Well, this is fun. You didn't know you were going to go to work. Go. Given unlimited money, we ha we're best. Okay. So we've had two of you say, if we had the money, we would be the best. So would I at driving my Maserati, which I don't have. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me it, it's compared to what, if you, what you're looking at, uh, mortality and infant mortality. I think we're about 50th out of the 200 plus countries, sovereign countries uh, in the world on the one hand, and we do have good accessibility, great research and the like, but 50th, uh, maybe not second tier, upper quartile, not first tier necessarily, okay. from an outcomes point of view. All right. A few more, and then we're going to come back to you and get you to almost say that again. Because the 50-50 club is important. Go ahead. Even with unlimited dollars in the U.S., transplants are many times not available because of shortage of organs and lists. Okay. I think fortunately or unfortunately, there's a variability from the top end of our care to the, to the floor, but the floor actually is, is pretty good. Uh, it looks bad when you compare it to the top end, but that being number one, and also I think it's interesting to look when some of our neighbors with theoretically uniform access and great care often come across the border for their care when it's not accessible. Yeah, it has been said that the private health care system of Canada is called Detroit. <laughs> All right, what if I had said our medical care is second rate compared to other countries. Uh-oh. Okay, what's the difference between medical care and health care? And now we're going to talk about the 50-50 club. I guess the way I would look at it, uh, health care is effectively the outcome for an individual and it's a society. Medical care is a specific field of medicine uh, is the way I would define it in any event. And in that context, uh, healthcare-wise, as I mentioned earlier, we're not doing as well as a society or as a nation as perhaps we could. Medical care is a different issue. I think we excel in that, have for quite some time. Okay, others want to talk about the difference between medical care and health care. There's some moderate crux here. This is important. Yes, ma'am. Hold on. Uh, I, I think that... Um Healthcare encompasses not only medical care, but wellness and other types of uh, care that goes directly to the population health as a whole. Okay, so back here, here's the deal, folks. There are two major healthcare indices World Health Organization, da 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 da, two of them life expectancy and infant mortality. That's it. So when you say our health care dot dot dot, 
you're really talking about life expectancy and infant mortality. And congratulations, America, we are in the 50-50 club. So we are 50th. It varies by two or three each year. We're 50th in life expectancy and 50th in infant mortality. Now, you're right, Namibia is not 51st. Um, but by most measures, that's pretty awful. And so our health care, as measured by infant mortality and life expectancy, is not what we would like it to be. Now, our medical care is as sort of defined easily as what do doctors, nurses, and patients do together? What do they do? That's medical care. Now, our medical care is about one-tenth of our life expectancy. <laughs> so let's try that one more time. So when you look at life expectancy, and you look at what kills people, because life expectancy, remember, is when do you die? Also, please remember, life expectancy starts at birth. So if you've got a bad infant mortality, you're going to have a bad life expectancy because there are a whole bunch of people who are dying early. We all think about life expectancy at that end. Oh no, life expectancy starts at birth. Okay, now one more time. Is this guy really saying that life expectancy is only 10% what doctors, nurses, and patients do together? And the answer is yes. 40% lifestyle. Mm. Now remember, lifestyle is not just overeating and smoking, even though those are the two biggies. Who can think about other lifestyle things that would go into that life expectancy that kill you? that kill you now. You gotta come up with something that kills you. That's sort of that's part of obesity, you know, that 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 you're right, but that's genetics. Ah, uh, genetics is another is another thirty percent. So so let me give you the big numbers and then we'll come back. Life expectancy forty, genetics thirty, public health twenty percent, ten percent medical care. So public health meaning seatbelts immunizations, those kind of things. Car wrecks and suicides. There you go. Car wrecks and suicides, largest cause of death under the age of five. Car wrecks. Suicide. How about murder? Okay, you don't, right, all of a sudden, one thing, and yeah, Cindy's right, you can call me Tim at the end of this, that's helpful. The other thing is when you leave here, the difference between medical care and health care is going to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, I get it! Okay, so there you go. It ain't 
just, you know, heart surgery. Okay, it's murder. It's suicide. Now, give you a real interesting one. So here we are. The World Health Organization has 11 different criteria, 11 different categories, sorry for, you know, you get categorized in what kills you. Well, the most recent one they added was deaths due to terrorism. Okay, you bet. So, so we don't normally, when somebody says life expectancy, you think heart attacks and cancer. Uh-uh. It's a whole bunch of things. So life expectancy, therefore, is not as easy to fix as one would think in terms of let's throw more money. Now you're going to have to throw money at murder prevention at suicide prevention, at better seatbelt, those sorts of things that we don't normally think about, gee, we're throwing a bunch of money at this and it will improve our life expectancy. Okay, so medical, yeah, or somebody, somebody want to yell, scream, yeah, go. I just have a question is, sure. have you looked at how much then that is adjusted for the fact that we're a developed country? when it comes to the obesity or the fact that we are able to afford cars, like how much, how would that, I don't know, I guess it would just be interesting to dive deeper into looking at lower so life expectancy in developed nations versus great, underdeveloped. Great question. Those 50 are all developed. We, in, India doesn't, I mean, we're 50, 50th in the world, but those 50 do not, you don't get Sri Lanka in, in that top 50. Um, yeah. How much life expectancy is enough? Love that. <laughs> Love that. Okay, we're going to come to that in about two more questions. And if we don't answer it, we'll come back to you. Because we're going to come to that in about two more questions. Love that question. Hate that answer. Love that question. Okay, so we're terrible at life expectancy and infant mortality. Why? Why are we bad? What, what is it? Uh, Remember, we're talking here 50th compared to Cuba. What about prenatal? Compared to Bosnia. Oof. Go. What about prenatal education? Prenatal education. Or infant mortality. Okay, so there's an interesting thing about infant mortality. And it has the, what you're really talking about with infant mortality in the U.S., not in Indonesia where I was two days ago. In the U.S., infant mortality is premature infants. That's, that's, that's the U.S. In less developed, it's the first year of life diarrhea. There's a whole bunch. So, so infant mortality means something. In you're still dead. You're still under a year. But it, it's very different things. In the U.S., it's preemies. So what causes preemies? 
fertility treatments. Woo. It's medically induced. Woo. Woo. Some, but usually not the micropremies, usually not the 26-weekers. Okay, I'm going to cut this part of it short. Nobody knows. Now they're sort of edging in a little bit of, of a little of this with infections of cervical this. and It's prematurity is as bad as cancer in terms of trying to figure out what causes it and therefore how to prevent it. So it's edging in, just like cancer, there is this and then this and that. But the cause, somebody, God, I'm a pediatrician, you know, a bunch of, ugh. 25 years ago, somebody said, all right, I'm going to give you $10 billion, and how would you figure out, you know, what's the most important thing, pediatrician, to cure in the U.S.? And I said, prematurity, done, bang. So we're not real good at figuring out all kinds of people working on it. But it is not an easy one. So prematurity is what causes infant mortality largely in the U.S. Now, can prenatal care change prematurity? And the answer is damn little. Unfortunately, damn little. So the, the way that prenatal care does have an effect on prematurity is in high-risk people. If you are a crack addict and you quit doing crack during pregnancy and somebody beats on you as part of your prenatal care, and those sorts of things, alcohol, crack, smoking, weight, better management of diabetes, that stuff in a high-risk person will reduce infant mortality. But by and large, the folks sitting here, right, the iron and vitamins, the occasional, my wife was hypertensive in both pregnancies, probably had an outcome, an important outcome. Um, so the, the hypertension sort of management, some, but the typical iron and vitamins that you all get and you get the, not a big effect, not, and, Wait till we get to the second to last one when you're going to rush the lectern and shoot me. We're not there yet. Okay, we're not there yet. But this one, please do not walk out of here and said, that guy said, don't do prenatal care. That's not what I said. Okay, what I said was do prenatal care, but the incremental effect on infant mortality is higher in high-risk people than low-risk people. Yes? Boy, you're getting the exercise. Do they count abortion as part of prenatal death? You mean induced abortion? Yes. No. Okay. How about any? No. I don't no. think that was on. Oh. Yes, sir. Uh, They're, 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 well, I'll tell you, I mean, the, the question was how, how good are these statistics? And the answer is 
the and you'll you'll all get this and Indonesia is not a bad place to, to or China it was just China last week some of these very very premature births don't get reported uh, they just don't and and so uh, and they ain't gonna so that's certainly true but this is this is 50th among not Sri Lanka this is 50th among um, other yes sir Ah, so, so infant mortality and life expectancy um, and health in general, those good things about obesity and smoking. Now, smoking, we don't lead the world. Congratulations. Um, interesting analysis of what the economy of China would do if all of their people stopped smoking since 4% of their GDP is from their cigarette tax. So, so there are interesting things that happen. So healthcare, we're pretty terrible. Medical care, we're a little better. Okay, so example, breast cancer mortality, we're best in the world. And that's a medical index. Okay, so breast cancer mortality, best in the world. There are a few more of those but there is an index called preventable deaths. And there are about 20 of them, including maternal mortality. You know, how the heck many mothers die in childbirth in the US? A lot. You know, Charlottesville is not, I'll, I'll offend somebody if I come up with a state or a city, so I won't. I offend enough people, um, not on purpose, so I'll stay away from that. But, but we, things like hospital-acquired pneumonia, things like you know, the things that you hear about about medical errors, things like, I mean, preventable deaths, maternal mortality. Um, you're not supposed to die from hospital-acquired pneumonia. There, there's a bunch of, 20 of them. We are 18th out of 18 in developed countries, as in the worst, in preventable death. Okay, now the one we haven't talked about, about at least some of the association of why are we so awful, is we have right now, today, sitting here, 50 million uninsured people. One more time in English, 50 million uninsured people. And when you then say, let's look at the insured population, our healthcare indices don't look so bad. Our healthcare indices don't look so bad. Our medical care indices don't look so bad. So being insured has something to do with mortality, right? Now, how in the heck could we possibly have 50 million uninsured when we have programs like Medicaid? Well, the answer is Medicaid right now, today, we'll see how it fares in 2014 with the new healthcare law. Today, 
Medicare basically stops at 19 and starts at 65. So if you happen to be between the ages of 19 and 64, unless you are blind, disabled, have kidney disease, or are pregnant, or more than one of those, you don't get health care in the United States, period. Period. Woo. Okay? So you can have no money. Zero. And the worst happened, or these, this category called childless adults, because moms of parents of kids on Medicaid, if you make as much as 16% of the federal poverty level, what? $3,000 a year. If you make as much as that, you can be covered by Medicaid. Basically, if you're between 19 and 64, and you don't make any money, you can't be covered by Medicaid. That's how come we got so many uninsured. Now, interestingly to me, the people who are uninsured do about half as well as the people who are insured. So they have half the immunization rate. I would have thought it would have been 10% or something. But they show up and they get care. Now, there is a president, a few presidents ago, that said, listen, there is no problem with access to care in the United States. Everybody can go to the emergency room. Okay? That would be a president of the United States that said that. Now, what do you think about that? Do we agree with that? We agree with it. Get all the care you want in the emergency room. Not a problem. Uh-oh. Right. Now, last time I looked, emergency rooms are for emergencies. Last time I looked. Okay, you can show up in the emergency room for colds and vomiting and sore throats and diarrhea and wait six hours and leave. You sure as heck can't get your preventive mammogram in the emergency room, can't get your diabetic medication, can't do anything for chronic disease unless you're crashing. That would be a medical term. Okay, so the emergency room ain't the right place for this. So basically, being uninsured kills you. Right? The, the mortality between 40 and 60 of people who are uninsured is twice the mortality of people who are insured. Yes, sir? factor in death. So, so of those who are uninsured, that ten they're in, I mean, whatever percent. I mean, remember, it's not it was interesting the last time the healthcare debate happened in the early nineties, at the beginning of the debate where everybody was in favor of covering people, it became 35, it was 35 million people are uninsured. At the end of the debate it was, well, only 15% are uninsured. So remember, most of the deaths are not between 20 and 40. It's just, it turns out that, that it's not good to be uninsured. 
Yes, sir. I might square that by saying medical care starts when you're engaged. And maybe this is health care. Yeah, no, that, that, and this is medical, well, yeah, this is medical care, but there's all kinds of things that happen in low-income populations that are part of health care and not medical care as well. Yeah, we're going to get to it, but you've got a different question. We're going to get to it. So much of statistics is... Um as you say, you have X deaths, half don't have insurance, therefore uninsurance causes death. Correlation, not causation. What depth of digging into the people that don't have insurance has been done? In other words, how many people that don't have insurance say, you know, I'd rather buy a car? Ah, fair enough. In the in the 18 to 30 age group, that's exactly what happens. In the 18 to 30 age group, that's the I don't have a that, that's the I am healthy the heck with it. Okay, but let me come back to your basic question, and then I want to move on. But I want to leave you with okay, we've had a 30-minute discussion about healthcare and medical care. What's important about this? Um, the things that people die of who are uninsured from a medical care standpoint, you know that the University of Virginia and others have a clinic in Wise, Virginia, Southwest Virginia, once a year. And I was there several times. And you don't take too many of, and I've seen it now twice, but as an allegory, the man that comes in and, and says, you know, I don't feel real good, I don't and has basically a grapefruit-sized bladder cancer that a simple urinalysis would have found um, and has been away from doctors for two years. It's those kinds of things that the uninsured wind up not getting picked up. It's that kind of stuff. Now, it gets complicated because of some of the other social determinants of health, of low income, that isn't just about medical care. But, but people who are uninsured die. So, very good point. How much of being uninsured is actually medical death and some is and some isn't, right? Some, some of these people get murdered at a, at a higher rate, et cetera. Yeah? How much of uninsurance, how much of uninsurance is pre-existing conditions of people who are already sick and chronically sick and therefore more likely to die in any way? Um, I don't know. So let, I, I can't give you a statistic of what percentage of people who are uninsured are uninsured because of a pre-existing condition. Um, it's going to be less next year, um, but uh, that's a whole fascinating economic thing, but um, certainly 8%, but not this. Okay, now, let's go on to the next one. Our health care is most expensive in the world. How many true? 
How many false? Okay. Want, want, want to say why? This is a trick question, by the way, as if the other ones weren't. So. Generally, uh, any uh, comparison of any expenses uh, never takes into effect the cost of living. Uh, the United States is obviously the highest standard of living in the world. And so to compare it to countries that don't have anywhere near the standard of living, you know, where uh, they can get by very well on what we consider absolutely atrocious um, incomes, uh, is you, yeah, just, you, really you, never, you never see it normalized, if you will, for... They actually do do that, and there is a very interesting line that goes like that with GDP and percent of GDP on health care. And they go, <clears throat> so richer countries use more health care. Just so happens, corrected for, at least for GDP, because we just have access to it, and we do it. So it's sort of interesting. Okay, the trick question, folks, is I didn't say our medical care is the most expensive, okay? The answer to our health care is most expensive is nobody knows. Because how broad would you like to call, you want to include the prison system in health care? You want to include police in health care? Okay, so health care, you want to include anti-terrorism in health care? So the answer is nobody knows, right? But that, the point of that, our medical care, you bet, is the most expensive. By lots. And then what you hear is, oh, well, okay. And of course, everybody says our health care is the most expensive, and what they really mean is our medical care. And when you go and you look up, you don't get to, you see NHE, you see national health expenditures. So don't get put off, they're just using it wrong. But our national medical expenditures are way ahead. What's the next one down? Who's next? What country is next? Switzerland. Everybody thinks it's Canada, it's not, it's Switzerland. And then it's, you know, go get healthy in Luxembourg. I mean, huh? There's, what? <laughs> so, so we're pretty expensive. Now, why? Why are we more expensive? Our model is very inefficient. Say some more. Okay. Basically, we're fee for service, and, uh, and there's lack of ignorance, or total ignorance, not total ignorance, but high level of ignorance in the marketplace as to what healthcare even costs, both among the providers and the receivers. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of defensive medicine that's practiced as well, just to avoid lawsuits. Damn good, okay, so let's, uh, okay, let's try and keep track, because you've hit a lot of them. All right, so one, now, when he says fee-for-service medicine, how many of you know what that means? How many of you doesn't know what that means? Okay, well, let me do the doesn't know real quick, okay? Doctors get paid, by and large, for what they do, piecework. 
I do heart surgery, I get paid for doing that. I see a patient in the clinic, I get paid for doing that. That's fee for service. Okay, the opposite of that is salary. Right? I just have a nice day. I just get paid X. Now, there are ways of modifying salary with bonuses. Of course, the most moronic thing is to bonus somebody on the basis of piecework, which is done a lot. Oh, yeah, you're, I'm salaried. Uh, in a place I used to be, the... You know, one of the high-income surgeons had a $100,000 salary and made a bonus of 900000 on the basis of everything that he brought in. Huh? So the fee-for-service system, as much as I would like to say it doesn't, it does stimulate docs to do too damn much. Okay, it just does. And, and how much? Not known. And defensive medicine, same issue, because the only way you can actually tell if a doctor is doing something because they're going to make money or because they're worried about being sued is to ask them, dot, dot, dot. Okay, and you may or may not get the most forthright, etc. answer in response to that question. There is a paper in the OBGYN literature that's in our last book that, that got at this, and when doctors in a particular study were asked face-to-face -face and they knew who they were, and then there was a list of sort of 10 cases of why did you, you know, here's a case, what would you do and why? The answer in a lot of those cases was because I was worried I was going to get sued. When it was then anonymous, they, in a greater percentage, said, well, I have expenses to meet. So, so there are complex motivations. We would like to think, we would like to think that that's all at the margin, that that's the 10%, the 90% trying to do the right thing. And I think that's true. Docs try to do the right thing. But at the margin, hopefully a small margin, but still at the margin, fee-for-service does cause an increase in services Malpractice does cause an increase in services, but it's very difficult to tell how much. Yes, sir. Could one of the most significant drivers of the cost of health insurance be the fact that most people have insurance and they really don't care what it costs? Ah, that's back to the third. Yes, yep. sir. That's back to the, the third, the sort of dissociating of the customer from the payment. Um, and so that's exactly right. That's the, and so that, again, it's, it's hard to know in a lot of these motivations, because you've got to ask people. 
But sure as the devil, defensive medicine, fee-for-service, dissociating the patient, and you know, that, we've now sort of hit on, we're missing one, big one, but if you say, well, healthcare is a market, those of you economists in the room, it's certainly not a market. And it's not a market, meaning that, you know, you sort of go to the store and buy an orange. Healthcare, you're dissociated from the expense, and it is really difficult to really understand what you're buying. Provide a lot of feudal care. Feudal, ah, see, there you go. I told you we'd get back there. Okay, so we provide feudal care. Not going to let you off the hook. What's feudal? And we keep them alive per request of families and things. Okay. You may have to answer your own question, you realize. Okay. And if you look at the statistic of how much of the medical care cost is in the process of dying, that is in the last six months of life, um, the hospice movement is beginning to really take hold in America, but this isn't science or economics or markets or anything. This is cultural. This has to do with how we Americans feel about what to do when someone is dying, and what we mostly do because of the insurance mechanism and so forth is pour a bunch of money into a by definition lost cause. They're dying, and they die. And it really is. I mean, I spend a lot of time overseas with a program I'm working on, and it really is. Now, I'll tell you what's, to me, awful, and that is that the Internet is actually starting to spread our craziness around the world. And so, uh, I mean, I know that, pick a number, 25 years ago, you could not get dialysis in England over the age of 65. Just could not. Right or wrong, I'm not getting into it. But you could not. That's gone. So, so some of our idea that we can live to be 814 um, is being perpetuated. Um, I would tell you, we are, that's chapter 8 of our book, and it's my least favorite chapter because I don't know how to fix this. And fix a lot of stuff. This one's tough to fix. This, this is about who are we. This is about how do we feel about ourselves. You, I, there, there are things that you can chip away at the side, okay? There are nursing homes that are worried stiff about getting sued, and so they routinely, uh, a, a very, very elderly person gets real sick and back to the emergency room. There ought to be ways of dealing with that kind of stuff. The other thing we see fairly frequently is Cousin Joan from Boise who hasn't seen Joe but is the last surviving relative and feels moderately guilty that she hasn't seen Joe in 47 years says, oh, you got to do everything. And so there's some of that. But basically, we are who we are. And you know what? Maybe that's okay. I, that, that one, 
that one's going to be tough to fix of who we are. How do we get that conversation going in a large scale way? What are your suggestions for how as a society start that conversation? Because it seems to me from what the gentleman said and what your thoughts are, um, it seems to me that we've got to start having that conversation about death and the meaning of death. And, you know, do you have any suggestions on that? <laughs> in 35 seconds or less. And, and I'm asking um, that. And I, I'm asking that well, because... Well, why don't, why don't we listen? How about, do people in the audience have some suggestions about how do we deal with this? One, two. In school right now, there's a lot of conversation more on um, taking a look at the quality-adjusted life years, given the cost of that care, which it's still hard for people to handle that. How do you, you know, do I really have my 95-year-old grandfather go through radiation when it's only going to keep him alive for maybe another six months at that, and kind of trying to look at that comparison when you're looking at the service that the, or the procedure that the patient actually needs and how okay, much longer so they'll really live. What this nice lady is talking about with quality-adjusted life years, okay, means, okay, so you take how long somebody going to live, you know, so you, you, you say, okay, heart surgery, bang. Heart surgery prolongs life on average, seven years. So that's, that's life years. Then the geniuses in health services said, oh yeah, but what if you're paralyzed? Doesn't that mean something? And so they then set about trying to quality adjust those years. Okay, so if you are paralyzed, theoretically you're quality is less. Now, oh, those of us who deal with statistics. The people who do quality-adjusted life years take a number somewhere between 0 and 100, make that a percent, and multiply that by the number of years. Thereby, statistically, trust me, I'm not going to be a wonk for long, that the quality is worth exactly the same as the duration. Because when you multiply those two things, that means that they're worth the same to somebody. Well, they're not. And so that whole science of quality-adjusted life years, and then, so, oh, by the way, who do you ask of, of quality? You know, so quality compared to what? Do you ask the person who's had the stroke what it's like having a stroke? Do you ask, do you go out to the mall and say, okay, random sample America, we're going to tell you what it's like to have a stroke, a heart attack, cystic fibrosis, da 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 da, and you tell us what you think the quality is? Do you ask doctors? Well, the answer is statistically, they go to the mall, which is right up there with being pretty dumb to me. I mean, I think you ought to ask the patient about themselves. Me, okay? What does it mean to you? We're starting to do some of that. Now, here's the sort of interesting punchline about quality-adjusted life years, which is the Affordable Care Act banned consideration of quality-adjusted life years in health care coverage decisions in the United States of America. What? One more time in English. 
Okay, there is an institute. They started something called the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI. The Affordable Care Act started that. To do what? To do something called comparative effectiveness. Well, you know, does this work better than that? Well, good, right? Does this chemotherapy work better than that one? Better than nothing. Good. Does this operation for back pain work better than... Good. We're not allowed to consider cost. What? Yep, the Affordable Care Act has said can't do that. Not allowed to consider the cost in any of these issues. The basic Medicare law, basic current Medicare law, everybody over 65, not allowed to consider cost in what something, in whether or not they pay for it. So we as a country have decided that consideration of cost when it comes to deciding whether things work or don't work is not something the United States wants to do right now. How do we get our congressmen to realize we, we do want to do that? Well. You can imagine that gets back to this question, of which is equally unpopular, of how do we talk about death. Um, this would go under the R word of rationing, and is just not a popular thing for politicians to talk about. And so it's that same sort of thing of it's difficult. These are really difficult decisions. Um, <clears throat> I had an op-ed that unfortunately ended exactly where you started, which is, we got to start talking about this stuff, folks. I don't know what the right answers are. But not talking about it ain't going to make it go away. If it's, if it's your family member who's sick, no cost is too much. If it's the taxpayer, then any cost is too much. And we can't resolve that difference. And again, this is cultural. It's individualism it, versus community concerns. It, it is. And, and it, it really is because I think that when you go to, and, and France seems to be the most, and I spent a lot of time in France, that the most sort of we take care of each other place. Maybe they just don't watch the internet as much. Uh, England used to be, and is sort of watching too much of our internet. Um, uh, there, there, are, there are absolutely differences in how we look at ourselves. Yeah. Are outcome studies, or best practice medicine, the same thing as cost? Oh, and, no. And how would physicians feel about the freedom of no cost consideration to choose best practice? So best practice again, has a little bit to do with what's best for the individual versus, versus what's best for society. But that was the whole concept that the government said, we're not going to consider cost. Now, I don't happen to agree with that. How we consider cost is a different thing, but there isn't anything else we do in our whole life that we don't consider cost. But the current best practices, the current 
Outcomes Research Institute is all about what works better regardless of what it costs. Now, without not permitted to look at costs. Now, talk about one thing, having done this, having been a doc practicing for 35 years, you do not want a doctor at your bedside deciding whether you are worth it. So you don't want that, okay? You don't want rationing at the individual level no matter what you do. You do not want the doc saying, oh, well, if, if I'm giving you this expensive stuff because that just ruins what we're about. We're supposed to take care of patients. But at a policy level, at a policy level, we've got to start looking at that stuff. No, it, they're not always together. A, I mean, it, yeah. just a couple of people, but as the, as the microphone's moving, what is cheapest is not always what is the most effective. No, I'm thinking what is best outcome is ultimately lower cost. It is not always. Okay. No, ma'am. Go ahead. Kind of on that vein of thinking, I would think that if we're doing evidence-based medicine or best practice medicine, that we're going to eliminate a lot of costs based on waste, based on the test and studies that you order for CYA and other things just to do it for... Um, is that a yacht club, CYA? You, you, you know exactly what that is. Oh! <laughs> and by eliminating all those other reasons that you're doing things, if you're only doing it for best practice or based on evidence medicine, that you're going to be um, eliminating a lot of that extra waste. Okay, go ahead, and then I'm going to do the one that really irritates the heck out of you. You just think you're angry. Now, I guess, what's the definition of best practice? Have you ever read the book, How Doctors Think? Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, you know, because sometimes best practice following a, a, an established routine is maybe not the best practice because you've got to sometimes think out of the box for a lot of things. You know, if medical school teaches you to think this, do this, 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 and this, maybe that's not the best outcome and maybe that's the most expensive way. So maybe it's, it requires rethinking uh, Individuals rethinking because how long you live, is it, it's sort of a cultural thing, and you're not going to be able to change that. The, the only way to change it is through economics. Okay, two more. I just wanted to say that One, we two, don't three. want doctors deciding if we're worth it, but the insurance companies are currently doing that. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. They're not deciding. If, what, what we hope is that the insurance companies are at least saying, you people with X, not you, Harriet. <laughs> but, yeah. And there are certainly not nearly enough people who are saying, you know, they're going to look out for number one, an advanced medical directive. Don't be a victim of the, of the, the system or family members that may have ulterior motives. Make the decisions yourself. Get it in writing and get it to all of the... Entities that matter. Okay, say it one more time. Because okay. if you leave here with a couple of things, medical care, health care, advanced directives, please. Say it one more time. Right answer. <laughs> advanced medical directives. Make the decision for yourself. And don't keep putting it off because one of these days you may not be able to do that. Last one here and then I'm going to make you angry. So how, how do we get 
I talk to a lot of people in my community, and the small business owners, they're the ones that really are going to feel the brunt, according to them, of the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. How do we talk to them in a way that makes them inspired for the fact that they're going to have to pay a little bit more um, and, and correlate what they're doing with the low-income part of society that they may never really come into contact with? How do we, because that's really who we have to get the buy-in for, for the elect, that's the part of the electorate that has to support this to some degree. Okay, so this is a whole, right? And, and so I'll just tell you what I think, and then we'll move on, because um, we could talk about that for a long time. Okay, so where we're headed with that question is, is all right, look, <clears throat> where do a fair number of these uninsured come from? They come from the cleaners, the gas station, the restaurants, right? I-29 North is filled with people who are uninsured because they work in small businesses, okay? And so small businesses now, with the Affordable Care Act, are at least going to be stimulated, would be a word, to provide either health care or pay for it. You know, well, the, the, the act, then there are a number of ways they can deal with it. <clears throat> So the act says you get a penalty or you got to pay, whatever that penalty is called these days. Um, and the question is, from the standpoint of that small business, is that good or bad? And I'm not going there because I want to get out of here alive. <laughs> the Affordable Care Act has said there are subsidies or tax credits for those businesses. But it's all about the money at some point about what they're going to have to pay or they're going to have to lay people off. <clears throat> My best view for the last 20 years into small business directly has been whoever cuts my hair. Okay, I'm there for a while and, and it's a small business and I get to... to these people are generally pretty bright, and, and so I, you know, so do you have health insurance through your, you know, does the barber provide you with health insurance? And my simplest answer was, add 25 cents to the cost of my haircut, damn it. Okay, that's my simplest answer. Don't lay off three barbers. Add 25 cents to the cost of my haircut. Now, and there are people, Uwe Reinhardt is a really well-known economist at Princeton who's gone through this argument, and it's not that inflationary to say, okay, one, th one way around this is actually to increase your prices by the cost of your health insurance. That's one way to do it. Another is to fire a bunch of people. Another is to put them under a certain thing of whatever is considered full-time. Um, I get it, uh, you know, I, on the other side of this, these people have got to pay their, you know, I mean, again, it's back to personal responsibility versus, you know, versus the country. I got a business. Don't tell me about, you know, helping the United States. I got a business, I got to meet payroll, and I don't have any money. And they won't pay an extra 25 cents for my haircut because Joe next door has already been paying that and has absorbed it. So it is not simple. 
Okay, I would like to see that happen, but it's not simple. Okay, here we the the other the last big part that we have not talked about about healthcare costs are administrative costs, and it's huge. Okay, administrative costs, administrative waste. How many times do they have to ask you over there? How many times you, were you born twice? No. Therefore, it probably didn't change. Not likely. Okay, so the administra each statistically in the United States, there are twice as many billing people as doctors, two to one. Okay, we have these things that are coming down the pike with the locomotive called electronic medical records. Ten years from now, we will be there. Not five, not two. Ten years from now, we'll get to a place where the electronic record will save money, will be done in a way that the docs don't hate it right now. <laughs> and, right, they're not looking at you anymore. They're looking at the computer. I mean, they're terrible. But 10 years from now, we'll figure it out. Okay, that number is $86 billion a year simply from the administrative waste that can be recaptured by electronic records without the screen turning purple when you order something stupid. That's called decision support. I call it ordering something stupid. Um, that will save a pile more. So there's a lot of quality and money in the electronic records. And when you go to the doc and the doc is yelling about how awful this thing is, tell them to hang in there because it's going to get better. Okay, it's probably $200 billion a year for real. Now remember, paying for the uninsured, the whole deal is $100 billion a year. That's the, that's the easy number to remember. So we waste, we waste, and, and the number, the first time I heard it when Tommy Thompson said it, one-third of our medical care dollars. One-third, $700 B billion dollars a year. We ought to be able to find enough to pay for the uninsured. Yes, sir. And then I'm going to irritate everybody in the last seven minutes. Yeah, a small fact about social history. The first computerized medical record development I ever saw was in 1972. So if your 10 years is right, it will have taken us 50 years to get oh, yeah. um, from the first effort to a system-wide use, usable system. Oh, That's yeah. sort of astonishing that it takes 50 years. I understand the complexity, but it, it's interesting that it took us 50 years. Okay. Preventive care saves money, true or false? True, how many true? Preventive care saves money. How many false? Explain that, please. Explain that, please. No, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler okay. alert. Okay, okay, so, okay, so, so, uh, no, the answer, of course, is both. So, who, who, right, this is a, my talk, I can put it down when I want. <clears throat> who would like to talk to the true? Where does preventive care save me? It's false in the short term, true in the long term. Preventive care, the results you won't see for 10 to 20 years up front, and that's the reason I think a lot of employers were at one time unwilling to pay for preventive care because initially it's very expensive but you don't see the results for 10 to 20 or 30 or 40 years. Okay, 
More. More true. Not false yet. True. Ah, come on. Go ahead. AIDS testing, um, I think we talked about Healthy Start, um, just all of these things, even education on how to live a healthy lifestyle uh, to prevent you from becoming obese and um, getting a heart attack. So that would be one way that, in my opinion, it would be true. Okay, a false. False, false. Two falses and then we'll wrap it up. Measles only. Measles only. I think one way that it might be false is we prevent certain problems only to survive long enough to get other problems that cost a lot. One more time. Say it again. Say it again. That's it. We prevent certain problems only to live long enough to get other more expensive problems. Okay, so here's the deal. And, and the reason that it's, and, and this is again one of those, and I'm going to promise to quit in five minutes because we'll stay on time. The reason, again, please don't walk out of here and say, that moron said preventive care is bad. Okay, no, preventive care is good. Right? The purpose of being on this earth is to be healthy, disease-free, and a whole bunch of things, but happy, healthy, all that stuff. If you want to just save money, then die at birth. <laughs> Go for it. Right? If it's about money only, right? so ignore that one. All right? Now, there are things that then, what do you include in saves money? Do you include productivity at work? Well, of course you do. Okay? Um, there are things that are difficult to include to monetize of the love of a grandparent for a grandchild who happens to be 70-something years old. That's tough to monetize. But let me give you a couple of closing thoughts to grit your teeth on. The, the middle of life always works, right? Motorola saves $3.10 for every dollar they put in. Just as long as they don't have to pay for you at 65. So Motorola gets you, Motorola for Motorola, saves a pant load of money by doing stuff that gets you to be sick at 66 when Medicare is paying for you. Okay? So think the economics of that one. That's one. Two, by virtue, this is a little wonky, by virtue of the fact that healthcare costs are going up at twice the rate of general inflation, right? So general inflation is 3%, healthcare is at 7%. Dying from the same disease 10 years from now is 25% more expensive. Just by virtue of the fact that it, that that all of that stuff, that medical inflation, now if we could cut down medical inflation, which is what we'd all like to do, that would not be true. But right now, today, if healthcare inflation is going up at 6% and everything else is wages going up at 
It's simply just by the fact that that, that occurs, it's 25% it's more expensive to die 10 years of that same disease. Then we get to this other really interesting issue that if you die at 40, you are less expensive than dying at 80. And the, the one that did this, and I'm fascinated that these are the people that did it, the Congressional Budget Office last November published a paper in a very well-known medical journal that asked the question, what would happen if we increase the cigarette tax 50 cents? What would that do to the overall federal budget 30 years from now? Okay, so one more time. We increase the cigarette tax 50 cents. What's going to happen? A certain number of people are going to quit smoking. Okay, federal government gets that 50 cents. Okay, people quit smoking. <clears throat> they live longer. They die later. They're more expensive. And they did that analysis, including productivity, and 30 years out, increasing the cigarette tax costs the federal government money. Okay? So, so the answer, again, please, don't walk out of here and saying he told us to smoke. <laughs> please. But the economics are complicated. And February, before the last, before the second to last, the original Obama-Hillary contest, the three of them had in their, in their campaign literature, we are going to base our payment for the uninsured on preventive care, because we're going to save so much in preventive care, we're going to pay for the uninsured. That paper, <clears throat> not that one, the one that preceded it, came out in January, and by February, that stuff made it off the websites. So it is not, it is complicated about saving this, saving this money in a lot of ways, but hopefully, on my way out of here, uh, a little of this has gotten a little murkier, a little of it has gotten a little clearer, and thank you. <laughs>